2: Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST code ACAST.
0: Join us for a journey as we go back to the great civilizations of the past. Who were the people? What were they like? How did they begin? And how did they end? Let's find out on this episode of Fan of History. Hello, Dan
1: Hello Bernie I'm so excited Because this time You have done Some amazing research And I don't know Anything about it yet
0: Well thank you this, We'll have some fun with it I, I did do a lot of research On this But I didn't prepare A script Like we sometimes do So I think um, I think this is going to be good I'm actually I've been excited about this For a long time And it, honestly I'm a little nervous Because this information Is so good I really want to make sure That I get it out As best I can To everybody So we're gonna to talk today about the Assyrian intelligence services. And my main source for this is a book by um Peter Dubovsky and it's called Hezekiah and the Assyrian Spies. But it's a very scholarly book and it's this guy breaks down all these tablets. And they're not, you know, your they're not the king's annals and things like that. They're these like little messages and tablets that it's it really shows how they how the intelligence services uh, of, of Assyria a serial work so kind of jump into this um so in this period in this what we're talking about here too is really a very small window it's even in our last episode dan said maybe the empire got too big this is kind of the the era that we're talking about in the in the first half like in the ninth century the first half of the 8th century it's, most scholars will agree that The Assyrian military was kind of like raids, capturing people, things like that. And it it wasn't really until um, TP3, he transformed the policy. They called it the the down-the-line approach. That's what um, Simo Parpola calls it. He's another great Assyriologist. Um, The strategy was, they wanted to expand the core area systematically by reducing these little independent countries and even the vassal countries to actual provinces directly controlled by the government, and um, there was a there was like a standardized procedure, just like everything else. Things they do, right? That we found out There's a massive deportation. They'd install an Assyrian governor. They'd construct Assyrian garrisons and forts, and then now there was always the threat of rebellion, though, with these kind of things. So they required an efficient intelligence network to keep them, you know, keep a lid on this. And TP three was like the main guy that really ramped this up. I mean, intelligence has like been around, I think, since there's been people. Intelligence is kind of like just knowing what's going on around you. But then, as a government doing it, you know, as a country, or empire, these, the Syrians did it more systematically and better than the other people around them and, you know, kind of prior to them.
1: It must have been around since the invention of agriculture. Absolutely. Because then you were like, "How much, how much stuff is in that village over there, and how well defended is it?" That's intelligence you have to have if you want to take their stuff.
0: Exactly. There's actually evidence of from like it's like 8,000 BC of a watchtower in the Levant, like you know around Jericho, and even Jericho had walls 18,000 BC. You know, so for sure. But it was just like how. So that would be, let's just say. You know, you're the strong man or the king or the ruler of a village. How how much you systemize that intelligence and how much importance you put on it, I, I think you're going to see you made a big difference. And I really think now this is why the, Assyrian, the Neo-Assyrian Empire actually happened. This is why it got to how it got to. I mean, you know, we try to study the... The battle plans and like, how come the Assyrians always won these battles? How come they all, you know, they didn't win, didn't lose that much? And they, we don't really think of like a Alexander the Great that he had these great strategies and you know overwhelming battles that they were, they were overwhelming odds that they defeated. They just sort of always won, but that's because, you know, if you ever read the ancient art of war, it's a China and it's actually supposedly written later than this our period here, much,
1: much later, like right. The third century BC, right?
0: Right. That's when they think it was written, and you know about the Warring Periods. But yeah, the three, yeah, the three.
1: Oh, sorry, he died in four ninety six
0: BC. I think they think it was written around the three or the two and three hundreds, actually. But you know how it was kind of like Sun Tzu, though he lived back then. But he, and today the intelligence services all have to read that book. And he, his one of the main things he always said was, "Don't go to war unless you know you can win." Right? Like you know, you got to know what's going to happen. Um, as best as you can, because there's so many things that could go wrong.
1: That's a very good idea.
0: Yeah. But, you know, not everybody does that. <laughs> I, I really always say, like, what were these people thinking? And they went against the Assyrians, and they always lose, because I don't think they had an organized intelligence system the way the Assyrians did. And I, I think they're best to d- define intelligence, right? So intelligence could be, like, the way you use intelligence, like, information. But, you know, intelligence is also, well, here's the definition of it. Intelligence refers to information relevant to a government's formulation and implementation of policy to further its national security interests and to deal with threats from actual or potential adversaries. That's intelligence, like that information as an activity. Intelligence involves the collection and analysis of intelligence information, and then the term intelligence can also refer to an organization that carries out these activities. So first of all, the Assyrians didn't have an actual like CIA or KGB and they didn't have a like you're the intelligence agency.
1: I'm so disappointed. <laughs> I wanted the Assyrian
0: CIA. Well, the, the kind of the whole thing was the CIA. Like the king and 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 his crown prince and his those guys kind of were the CIA. that was the real important um, part of their military function, right? Like they had, were had to be the guy in charge. The one somebody had to be in charge They can't tell everybody everything. you know it's secretive. so that's kind of was their main role. Now I'm saying like we have a lot of information on, especially Sargon and Sennacherib. and so when Snacherib was the crown prince, he was kind of like your spy chief and Sargon. I think Sargon was probably TP3's, um, you know, he was his guy. Even though Shalmaneser and, you know, there's that whole, is he his son, did he overthrow him? Yes. So Sargon was always out on campaign because he knew he had Sennacherib to take care of the intelligence business in the back and also, the, you know, running the government.
1: And poor, poor Sennacherib just wants to build things.
0: He just wanted to build things. But I'm sure he was, a and he liked his wife too. But so then... In, in the, um, the task of an intelligence, so modern in- so I was, actually did some reading and stuff, and I watched some information on um, modern intelligence agencies, and then even the history of intelligence, there's this guy who wrote this huge book on the history of intelligence, I searched Assyria in it, one word, nothing, <laughs> so it's, but um, this book, the, the Hezekiah and the Assyrian Spies by Dubovsky, he really goes into depth, so I I really recommend if you um, like the podcast, this episode, if you like, check it out, because there's a lot of detail in it, and it's impossible for me to go through every little thing that happens, but um, he explains that there's, uh, the intelligence services do different things besides just gather intelligence, they also are involved in, like, psychological operations and things like that, so, and the Assyrians were masters of it all.
1: Interesting. Mm
0: Mm-hmm. So what I think I'm gonna do is we'll talk about I'll tell you about a couple of case studies and to show how how they work. I think it's a good way. And then the book has tons of them. Very, very interesting stuff. And so like the first one is the Siege of Jerusalem. There's so much um to shows how these uh, their services work just by that. So I'm gonna actually go to Two Kings eighteen right. I'm not going to read this whole thing, but you'll, you'll you'll see what I'm saying. If you if you remember um, the Rob Shaka right, he came outside the walls of Jerusalem and he made this speech. Yes. So that sounds like oh that's silly. That probably didn't happen. Now word for word, it probably didn't happen. But there's a good chance that something like this either did happen there, but it definitely happened in other places. We even have inf- records of it in Babylonia. If you remember. Sargon just marched right into Babylonia. Didn't even have to really shoot a, you know, fire an arrow. Yes. So this is kind of the way they would do it. So here I'll just. So here's two kings, eighteen. So remember when the Rob Shaka comes out and he he's talking to them. So he says he brings a message. Tell Hezekiah, this is what the great king, the king of Assyria, says. On what are you basing this confidence of yours? You say you have the counsel and might for war, but you speak only empty words. On whom are you depending, that you rebel against me? Look, I know you are depending on Egypt, that splintered reed of a staff, which pierces the hand of anyone who leans on it, such as the king of Egypt to all who depend on him. So now, that just sounds like words, right? But if you break that down, you see that they know that they're talk that they, so the Assyrians know that they do not have enough um men to fight in a war, because they just conquered all the rest of their cities, right? They're saying they know that you're trying to um, depend on Egypt, and they know Egypt isn't going to really help them. So that means, just right there, that they have a whole bunch of people out gathering intelligence to know this stuff. On just that one sentence, a couple of sentences. So then he continues, but if you say to me, we are depending on the Lord our God, isn't he the one whose high places and altars Hezekiah removed? Saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you must worship before this altar in Jerusalem. So I mean, there you go again. They know what's happening in this in you know the state of Judah. They know that there's people that don't obviously don't aren't very happy about them destroying their religious spots and telling them that they have to worship in Jerusalem. And the way that they conquered, uh, that they moved into Babylon at that time, you know, Sargon did was by conspiring with the temples. So was somebody that, you know, some temples probably didn't like that they knocked the Asherah poles down. So here's a great example of the information that they had, that they told them that they had the information, and the and the psychological, you know, effects of, you know, going outside to, and speaking to them in Hebrew. And here's just one more part of it. Come now, make a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses if you can put riders on them. How can you repulse one officer of the least of my masters of fic- officials, even though you were depending on Egypt for chariots and horsemen. So there again, he knows that, hear. I'll give you 2,000 horses. You don't even have 2,000 soldiers. And they know it because they have good spies.
1: <laughs> 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 right? Yeah.
0: So I, I find that very interesting. I mean, you you hear the, and, and I feel after studying this more, like, wow, that, maybe some guy really did yell outside the walls of uh, Jerusalem that day. I mean, that's pretty, um, you know, historically, we don't have any record besides this from the Bible that that was said, but we have these other records that they did things like this at other cities. Hmm. Right?
1: I would like more examples. All
0: right. I'm going to do this other example. And this is on the um, border of, you know, so remember when we were just talking on our last episode about where the Assyrian heartland is, and it butts up against Erartu, and TP3, uh, no, before them, if you recall, Araratus, when did, now this is before I was in the podcast, but Arartu started get expanding, I believe, in, before Tiglis-Pileser III, right? He sort of, he sort of stopped it. Yes. So then he built a lot of forts along there, and this, during the time of Sargon, there were some, just a whole bunch of different incidents. So here, these examples will show kind of how the the information got to them. So you had your governors and the governors were required to send, you know, information back to the kings. So on this this area where Urartu was kind of bumping up against the, you know, the Assyrian heartland, it's it's there's mountains there, the rivers are there, there's tributaries of the rivers, and there's also lots of lumber. And the Assyrians would bring the lumber down, um, you know, they would put them on these rafts and send them down the river. And you get the sense that there's these this little small scale like engagements just happening all the time. So the one there's three governors on the Assyrian side and there's multiple governors on the Irartu side, and the Assyrians have forts along the river. Okay, so here's some reports that we have from um, the Erartan border. Right, so was, this area was ripe with trees, and the Assyrians need the needed the trees, and we could talk more about the trees after, but. So the main task of the Assyrian officials was to monitor the Ararat frontier and warn the court about any impending insurrections or stuff like that. And there's this one; it's called the Palua crisis. So a report on this Palua crisis has been preserved on a, and these are on some tablets, and some of them are they're not all hundred percent complete, but we get enough from them. And this one, this guy's name is Asipa. So Asipa's dispatch. The third man of the king, my lord, who came, told me, Your guard should be strong. The guard is very strong. Three governors in Palula and another three in Denibi are gathered with pack animals opposite us. We are keeping watch opposite them. All the people are inside fortified palaces. The oxen and sheep are on this side of the river. We are standing by and keeping watch. So, according to this report, it's telling them about the tension on the border, right? And the king was aware of this escalating tension. So he told Asipa, just to keep a close eye on events. So he watched carefully. He kept providing the court with um, intelligence. And he had some more intelligence for him here. Six Arartan governors with pack animals took their position along the banks of the Murat. So he communicated this intelligence on the rank, the number, and the location of all the military commanders. Right, Who they were. Um, the latest information provided by this Asapa was the account of his defensive countermeasures. So he moved his people into the fortified palaces, and he moved his domestic animals to the other side of the river. Okay. So he strengthens his guard, he takes advantage of the situation, and then he asks the king to supply him another 500 men from another province to supply his guard. And that was that's you know example of a, a Syrian intelligence report. But what happened is Sargon and they, they knew about this, but it wasn't that big of a deal, like, So they actually didn't send the 500 men, but there was a lot of stuff going on um, battle-wise, but they couldn't spare anything. So you also get these other reports where they're like, well, the one guy says to the guy, one um, governor sends the other one something like, I hope you are well. You know, I hope everything is well. And he sends him back. I hope you hope everything is well. You must be happy, you know, being uh, safe in your house because there's troops all over the place here and they're attacking us. So there was all these battles going on. And they were constantly, you know, letting the king know um, what's happening. But he doesn't always have somebody to send in the army, you know, today. So I get the sense from these all these different reports that there was all these fires just going on all outside the around the empire. And that's how the king had to decide which his annual campaign was going to be. Like, do I have to go to Elam this year? Do I have to go to, you know, Babylon now? Where do I have, to, I have to go to Jerusalem? Who's rebelling? And you can only pick one a year, I guess. So then you needed the intelligence services to have these psychological operations, know what's going on, know where the worst um, fires are going to be. And then, like, when you do go fight somebody, that's why I think they slaughtered the hell out of them, because then they could use those psychological operations, you know, So, like... Because you can't fight 13 wars at a time, you know, if you have 13 different, you know, areas that are inflamed, so to speak. Wait, do we know which year this was? This was... These are during the time of Sargon, so it's like... 708, um, 711, like these, this time period. Okay. Um, it's when Sargon was king. I
1: wonder what the Urartians were up to.
0: So the Urartians, they um, had built a highway and connected all their peripheries with Lake Van. So I remember too, they said that highway had, um, you know, torches. So if the Syrians came, whoosh, 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 they light one torch, they'd see it. And then they that's how they could uh, mobilize it. So they indicated that the Urartians were able to... Um, Mobilized when the Assyrians. Every time the Assyrians, you know, tried to fight back, so it was a really um contested, contested uh, border. And it's, you know, and today we have nuclear weapons, so you can't have these you know border skirmishes. But it, I got the appearance that they're pretty much fighting all the time, you know.
1: Yes, it's uh, very ambitious from Arato. They are so good at copying Assyrian stuff.
0: Yeah, there's even they even have some. It's very limited, but they'll they'll have some. He could kind of extrapolate too that they know what the. Because the Artans obviously have some spies and that kind of thing too. Because you know that's what you have. You have actual spies out in the field. Those are like scouts. And then you have you know your your provincial governor. He gets the information, or uh, and he sends it to the um, king. Also, then you have your vassal kings, and they f- provide information and they send it to the governor, and then he sends it to the king, or to Sennacherib, who then sends a, a dispatch to the king. It's very like like the CIA, but they just don't call it that. Is it
1: possible this this Russian border trouble is before 715
0: B.C.? Yes, around uh, 715. Because in
1: in 715, uh, Sargon decides to attack.
2: This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile.
0: for real. That um, would be eventually. He got sick of it. Yes, and also the
1: he probably knew about the Kurorters, uh, the Russian trouble with the
0: Cimmerians. He probably did, and you know they don't mention anything about that. in in this and book it doesn't say anything about the Cimmerians in that. But he obviously did know. I mean, they um they also made their vassal kings like they would sometimes lie. So they would. That's why they would. When three people or four people would give the reports, they would have to like say, "Oh, this guy's lying." Now and that's how they know. They would say these things like, "Oh, this guy was turned out. He was, you know, lying to me, and that's why he was. In, you know, they went and he disappeared or whatever." Relations between Assyria and Urartu they alternated between standoffs in which both parties respected each other's territory, and they right into overt armed conflicts, such as this. Um, there's a Palua crisis and a Arda crisis. So the main task of the Assyrian officials was to monitor the frontier and warn the imperial court about any insurrections. So a report on the Palua crisis has been preserved in the form of this guy, Asipa's dispatch, the third man of the king. My lord who came told me, your guard should be strong. The guard is very strong. Three governors in Padua, and another three in another province are gathered with pack animals opposite us. We are keeping watch opposite them. All the people are inside fortified palaces. The oxen and the sheep are on this side of the river. We're standing by and keeping watch. So according to these lines, this report is only one among many reports informing the court about the tension on the border. The king was already aware of the escalating tension, and he just ordered him to stay this this guy to keep a close eye on Avenged, so watching carefully, he provided the royal court with the following intelligence: six Arartan governors with pack animals took their position along the banks of the Murat. So thus he communicated on the intelligence, the rank, the number, and the location of the Arartan military commanders, and on the combatant corps of the Arartan troops. So like, from the history of intelligence, this like showing that this is what intelligence services do like. If you were talking about a rep- an intelligence report, you know, from the CIA, it would be sort of structured like this. So, he, furthermore, he told them what he did. He strengthened his guard, and he took advantage of the situation, so he asked the king to send him another 500 men. And then there's the Harda crisis. There's three reports relating a similar escalation in tension in Harda, and this came from the governor of Am- Amidi. His name is Lipfor Bell. That usually means lord, so he's like, you know, I'm like a magnet. Information about this crisis was acquired from two sources, uh, the a diplomatic envoy and some spies. So you can sketch it out as as follows. Um, the Araratans made a foray into the territory under Assyrian control and captured some border fortresses. And this, you know, raid was more like a scouting foray, it was organized under um, the Araran governor and his deputy, um, opposite of the Amidi province. So the, Amar, the the city of Harda became a center in which Arartan troops were assembled, and then the Arartan frontier was closely watched. Um, as for the foray, it was not a simple border cross. So Lip Bell reported that, quote, the levied Araratan troops are positioned town by town in battle array as far as Turaspa. The mobilization was ordered by the Araratan king himself, as to the work I ordered you, the governor of Harda to do, don't do it. Feed your horses until I send you a messenger. So this interruption of assigned work, it, it constituted a clear warning that attack could shortly befall the Assyrians. And it was actually archaeologists have um, confirmed this, this little story here. And so, and like I said before, I think we mentioned that the, the Arartans had a highway. um Sometime in the seven hundreds, they built this long highway to connect the Lake Van region, and it's today. It's still um, it's still there. So wow, yeah, it's uh, it goes through three thousand high mountains. It's 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 like on the border of Turkey and um, you know Iraq. Hold on now. <sighs>
1: <laughs> I'm very curious which year this is, but I think it's before seven fifteen.
0: Yeah, I'm going to find it before we make sure I squeeze it in there. So for the most part, this ancient highway follows the modern highway. Um, There's bridges and stuff and it's an amazing highway. So they positioned, so thus by them positioning the troops town by town in a battle array and that most likely meant the mobilization of all the forts, the fortresses, all the fortified cities along this highway um, connected all the way to their, to their king. So this shows you they, their, they did their intelligence. You know, they had these scouting stations all along this highway. So when these road stations, when they're put on high alert, that assured fast communication um, in case they, um, the Assyrians decide to retaliate. So on the basis of what we know, the Assyrians did not retali- retaliate, but they just re- limited their response to some negotiations and strengthening their guards so this Bell, he was ordered to send his messengers to talk to the Iranian government for violating the treaty. He says, why do you capture our forts while we are at peace? Good question. Yeah. So Bell was ordered to send his messengers to say to the Iranian government, you know, why are you violating the Assyrian treaty? Why do you capture our forts? Apparently, the Iranian government just gave an arrogant answer, which is lost, but... You know the the records say that he gave an arrogant answer, so this guy's mission failed. But this shows you again how the governor's mission was to keep a information to the king on what's going on in the border. It was also his mission to sort of act as a you know diplomat and go and try to you know diffuse the situation. So in this condition, this situation, you know the Artons kind of got the best of the Assyrians. Seven oh seven. Wow. The abundance. Abundant intelligence reports covering the situation in this transitional area are preserved in the correspondence of four Assyrian officials, Bell, the government of Amidi, who was in office in 705 BC, Asher Durbula, the governor of Masinu, and two officials of Tuscan, Asipa and Sa-Asher-Dubu, after having been the governor of Tushan in 707.
1: Okay, so that's very late in Sargon's reign.
0: Yeah, yeah, right before he died. I hope that... I just get the sense that there was a lot of stuff happening on all these borders that the Assyrians were not loved. They were like really pissed a lot of people off. They always rebel from them, especially when you come in, you know, skin a whole bunch of people and cut down their cities and capture your women and children. I imagine that makes you unloved. They were constantly trying to put these fires out with this kind of stuff.
1: But I think that we have to remark on the timing of uh, Sargon's great attack against the Roto in seven fifteen. Because he seems to have perfect intelligence at the time, he knows absolutely the Sumerians are invading Urartu, and the Meneans are rebelling because he beat them up the year before, and told them to rebel, and they are against Urartu. Yes. So while these both these things are going on, he attacks, and that seems to be an indication that his intelligence is
0: pretty good. Yeah. You know, something else about intelligence services is, and and I learned this from, you know, some of my studying about just in general, Um, I think, and I've always thought this, I think they're so secret that after a couple generations, they forget. Like, they don't really tell the next generation what exactly to do. Yeah. Because you have, like, Tiglath pileser and Sargon and then Sennacherib, and then by the time we get to Ashurbanipal, he wasn't really supposed to be the emperor, so maybe he didn't get all the information. And then, you know, he was a good warrior, I guess. But then after him, it kind of fell apart. Problem with secrecy. Exactly. Isn't that crazy? I, have some, I think about like the, on the X-Files, the smoking man, like, you know, like all the information's gone. Whatever maybe those people knew if there was such a thing, <sighs> you know.
1: I also remember Sargon's daughter who kept writing intelligence reports to him.
0: Really? No, that didn't come up in my studies. That's interesting. He married his daughter to some borderland king, and then he got reports from her.
1: Uh,
0: so I do um, I do recommend this book for anyone who's really interested in taking a deep dive, because there's so many different case studies in there, but it is it is scholarly. But if you if you read through it, you can kind of get the idea. So it's very difficult to explain each situation, at least for me.
1: I bet there's more coming out from all these uh, clay tablets that haven't been read yet.
0: I'm sure, I'm sure. And it's, I mean, I I tell you, I read a paragraph one time and I thought that paragraph would have taken me a day to write that. I mean, you have to reference every piece of a tablet. My goodness, I I appreciate the scholars who do this work, that's for sure. Do we have more information on spies? Yeah, here's a little spy information here. This is more of like a, more of a, like, how about a covert operation? Oh, There was this guy, name. We won't go into the whole backstory, but this guy's name is Lutu, right? And he was, it was an area that the Syrians... The, their king, this area, their king decided to become a vassal king. But his brother, Lutu, didn't want to become a... He wasn't good with that. So um, to pacify this guy... So he kind of rebelled, right? And he got some horsemen together and stuff. So to rebel, to pacify this guy, they orchestrated this um, covert action. They kidnapped his son. <laughs> okay. And they took him and then they they moved him. like They t- secretly transferred him. They got him over a mountain pass. And they took him to Kar Sarukin, and it was all performed according to plan. And so once his son was under guard in the under the walls, then the court told the governor of that area to write an angry letter voicing the king's strong disapproval of Lutu's behavior. So, having his son in their hands, the Assyrians could dictate their terms. So, unfortunately, that's all we have. We don't know exactly what happened because the tablet is broken, but. I thought that was another cool story.
1: Yeah, he probably kept tabs on his son and um, were surprised to find him missing.
0: (laughs) Like, where is he? Right? So then they they could also find out, you know, some... There's another guy's name was Aspabera, and his brother was Lutu, right? So he was supposed to be fighting against his brother, but it turns out that his brother, they knew, only had 20 cavalrymen, but There was another 80 cavalry men in this certain you know group that was you know making trouble and Aspa this Aspa Bear guy he was supposedly a vassal so he sent to the to the um, he sent a letter back to the actually to the king of urartu saying no no I'm an, I'm an, I'm an Assyrian you know I'm loyal to the Assyrian king sorry but he actually did give some of his troops to his brother, but they were he tried to disguise them but because one of their spies knew, they were able to give that information to the king. And they, they warned the court about his, that he's, you know, a duplicitous. He's basically not doing what he says.
1: Good intelligence work.
0: Yeah. So they made clear. So he turned from being a pro-assirian vassal who is secretly plotting all along. <laughs> Interesting, right? So they really I, I they really had their spies all around. Do have more spy stories? The only other psy, there is a, a psy, another psyops you could, well, we sort of mentioned it before, but... The way that they conquered babylon the way sargon got into babylon i mean sennacherib had to siege babylon but sennacherib he really um worked with inside the temple people he found out who was against what you, you mean sargon. Yeah, sargon yes you said sennacherib oh i said sennacherib yes yeah, sargon yes yeah, sennacherib didn't do it the right way um sargon worked with this with the it, there there's a damaged tablet that an intelligence agent says a citizen of Babylon in quotes provided the Assyrian court with some information about the um about what was going on in Babylon and about the king of Elam. So at the time that he Sargon walked into Babylon, just like Cyrus walked into Babylon and Alexander the Great walked in, he knew that there was trouble going on in the temple. He knew he utilized this Use it, utilize it so that he can get the doors open, and he also knew where the Elamite army was so that he was able to, you know, do that operation, not get caught with his pants down, you know, and land in front of the outside of Babylon, and then the El- Elamite army comes and get him. I mean, you know what, we, what I said before about the generational thing? I mean, just think about the, I mean, the massive intelligence failure of the Medes and the Babylonians showing up outside of Assur sometime maybe in the future. Yes.
1: Right? <laughs> they would have needed Sargon then.
0: Right. that That's my point about how they. this intelligence services was really probably Sargon, Sennacherib. By the time Ashurbanipal, he must have let it fall apart. Interesting stuff. It is very interesting stuff. And um, I do recommend, uh, you know, if you want further information, check out this book by Dubovsky. It's called Hezekiah and the Assyrian Spies. Mm-hmm. It's a very scholarly book, but it's also very, um, very interesting. And
1: with that we are about to return to the 630s BC.
0: Yes. And I could I think Assyria is going to be a little bit quiet in the 630s as far as what we know. I'm sure a lot of this stuff that we just talked about was happening all the time. but we're we're really winding it. I do I know there's more information on the 20s, but the 630s and in, in Assyria is very sparse. But we know stuff was happening, so we're going to
1: discuss it. And we know if the Assyrians don't tell us what is happening, it is not good for them. That's right. That's why they don't tell us yes. very much. <laughs> we are getting closer to the end of the Neo-Syrian Empire in 612.
0: Yes. But I think, you know who starts getting born now The and start coming around? They call them the the um, pre-Socratics. So that's how the world's going to sort of shift that way in a couple hundred years. But the pre-Socratics are um, like philosophers who pre precluded, you know, preceded. Oh, interesting. So they start to come around. They start getting born in the late 600s and start operating in the 500s. Oh,
1: well, the 6th century BC is the, a great time for philosophy.
0: Yeah. Yes, it is. That's why they get started. We think of it in the 300s, but anyway, we'll talk about that then, right? Yes. Excellent. Well, So I hope you have enjoyed
1: this story of the Assyrian Empire and how it actually worked, and that you now have a better picture of uh, this thing we've been talking about for so long. Yes. Now let's tear it down! <laughs>
0: Yeah, let's rip it apart. Well, I think most people know when it is, but we still have the six thirties, we have the twenties, and we have other parts of the world. So again, if anybody has any information on, you know, East Asia, India history specifically in those, you know, decades, that's always a problem. We have big era stuff, but it's hard to like pinpoint a decade. I would appreciate it.
1: Very good. And if you like to support our show, please do so on patreon.com where you can donate a sum per episode of your choice.
0: That would be great. Yeah. Check out our
1: Facebook page. Send me messages. And now I'm quite happy to get back to our chronological narrative that we are used to.
0: Yes, it's been a while. So we appreciate you letting us go through this little sidebar. And we're right back to the 630s next time.
1: And 28 years of dismantling this gigantic empire into nothing
0: amazing all right well let's do it we would like
1: to thank our sponsors on patreon for being so great and being sponsors yes there are nine sponsors at the one dollar level thank you all and then we will give personal thanks to everyone above that level thanks to frank hick Thanks to Brian Donoghue. And please excuse me if I pronounce your English names wrong. I'm very sorry. English is not my native language. Thanks to Sir Robert. Thanks to Chris Cork.
0: So far so good. You speak better English than me.
1: Uh, Well, thanks to Sir Robert and Chris Cork. I don't think I speak better English than you. Thanks to... Oh, here are some Swedish sponsors. Thanks to Ulrika. Thanks to Martin Olsson. And Roland Magnusson. Thank you. Thanks to Johan Sträng, who is at a very special level, namely the Marduk Lord God of Babylon level. So Johan, if you send a message on Patreon, we will do something special for you. We also have two sponsors on the $5 level, which we have aptly named Most Excellent Lord Sponsors. You also have a reward if you send a message on Patreon. Those two people are Matt McGovern. You know oh, him, don't you?
0: Yes, he's a super fan.
1: And Nicholas Barton. Thank you, guys. We also want to extend a special thanks to the Endless Not Podcasts, of which you are a listener, Bernie, are you not?
0: Yes, I definitely am. Very interesting.
1: Check it out. It's a great podcast. Definitely is. Thank you all. This is what keeps us going. So we are most thankful.
0: Yeah, we appreciate it. We, me and Dan go out drinking with the money right after. <laughs> no, we're not. <laughs> no, we're not. Because he lives in Sweden and I live in Pennsylvania. <laughs> one day, one day we'll do. One day tour we'll have Iraq
1: and the Assyrian heartland.
0: Oh, that'll be amazing! I just got a GoPro camera, so we'll be ready to go.
1: Okay, we need much more <laughs> sponsors than that for that. <laughs>
0: I'll just use my own retirement money. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, guys. Yeah, thanks, guys. Speak to you soon, Bernie. Yes, cheers. Thanks, Dan.
2: If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting us on Patreon. Patreon.com slash fanofhistory. Just a dollar an episode would help us out. Thanks, and see you next time.